Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 3, Episode 3 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. As always, you will find a comprehensive running order in the show notes detailing the topics we covered in this episode, but to give you the usual teaser, in France we dissected Nice's undefeated start to the season under Christophe Galtier, looking at both the system and the personnel. In particular, we looked at Dante's intriguing defensive partnership with Jean-Claire Todibo and Kasper Dolberg's potential to go on and have a really productive season, supported by the likes of Calvin Stengs, Amin Guiri and Alexis Claude Maurice. In Italy, we compared the quality of the Juventus side Massimiliano Allegri inherited from Antonio Conte in 2014 with the quality of the Juventus side he inherited from Andrea Pirlo this summer and we looked at some of the key points he will need to address if Juventus are to have a successful season. In Germany, we looked at Dominic Sabostroy's role within a really quite exciting front four at RB Leipzig. Jesse Marsh has so far deployed a 4-2-3-1 and it looks like Sabostroy will have a pivotal role to play in that setup. And in Spain, we looked at a difficult start to the season for Real Betis and considered how their squad will be able to cope with La Liga duties and Europa League duties. We discussed all of those topics and so much more. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, follow at FFOps on Twitter or visit freelancefootballops.com. On now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe and well. Enjoy. Rudy Barlow will only be joining us for his usual La Liga roundup as he is currently off holidaying in the highlands of Scotland. So for France, Germany and Italy, you'll have to make do with the dulcet tones of myself and Michael Jones, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you view each of the three of us. Uh, Michael Jones, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, Leaving Sheffield tomorrow, so yeah, this is a welcome distraction from all the packing, really. Ah, yeah, of course. Leaving Sheffield and going for your big operation. So, fingers crossed, by the time this episode goes out, Michael will have gone under the knife. So, hopefully, all goes well and all men's well post-recovery. And as you say, this will provide a welcome distraction from your packing and from that imminent operation. But I'm sure all will be fantastic. And I suppose... It's been a while since we've started an episode with a look at what's going on in Legan, but we had some really quite unsavoury incidents in Nice on Sunday night, and I don't want to dwell on those 
for too long. Um, I would rather dwell on what's happened on the park rather than just off the park, although it did boil over onto the park. But generally speaking, I would rather focus on the football itself and Nice under Christoph Gauti. Yeah, for sure. I guess over the summer, Lille's title winning coach, Christophe Gautier, switched the northeast of France for the south coast, taking over as manager at Nice. And funded by Jim Ratcliffe, the richest man in Britain, the four times champions of France have been active in the transfer window this summer, bringing in the likes of Calvin Stengs, Melvin Bard and Pablo Rosario. With three games gone, Nice are undefeated and ostensibly anyway, looking to be gaining some momentum. What have we learned about Gautier's Nice side in the opening weeks of the season, Ali? Yeah, we've learned that probably this Nice side are going to be very similar to Gautier's Lille side, which of course won the league last season. Just before we do move on to that, I feel like we do have to address what happened off the park. And suffice to say that those events were totally deplorable and the relevant parties must be sanctioned. I think it suffices to say that. There's been a lot of talk over the last couple of weeks about the Netflix documentary Malice in the Palace, about that NBA game and the events there back in 2004, I think. And I was trying to think of some similar rhyming words to describe what happened on Sunday night. Bearing in mind that Nice play at the Allianz Riviera, uh, the closest I could get to a sort of malice in the palace play on words was hysteria in the Riviera, which isn't quite a rhyme, but um, it felt as close as we were ever going to get. Suffice to say, as I've said, it, it was utterly deplorable and the right sanctions need to be made um, in the not too distant future to ensure that this doesn't become a common trend because there have been signs early in the season, in the league and season, that crowd trouble could perhaps become a worrying trend this season. So there needs to be the appropriate responses taken, the appropriate action taken to ensure that such fan trouble does not become a trend. But yeah, moving on to the football, which is what we're really here to discuss. I'm actually going to cast my mind back a couple of weeks to Christophe Gautier's Nice team destroying Lille 4-0 at the Stade Pierre-Mauroy. Um, that was, of course, Christophe Gautier's return to the Stade Pierre-Mauroy. And in all honesty, that 4-0 win on match day two flattered Lille. It could have been six or seven in favour of Nice. Lille had, of course, lost Mike Mignan and Bubakari Sumari in the transfer market. Renato Sanchez and Xhaka were injured. And so Yusuf Yazici had to play in the midfield too alongside Benjamin André. And perhaps unsurprisingly, that midfield too was overran quite comprehensively by Nice's midfield too of Mario Lamina and Pablo Rosaria. New arrivals, of course, for Nice. And they totally dominated that midfield in what was a, a classical 4-4-2 against 4-4-2 matchup. Um, but having said that, I think Mario Lamina and Pablo Rosario will dominate a lot of midfield. Uh, it was just probably more dominant, that performance, than a lot of the performances we'll see this season because of the fact that Yusuf Yatsichi was playing that midfield too. Um, but regardless, a lot of positives to take from that result. Very comprehensive, very convincing. And I think that's probably 
served as a vindication of sorts for Galtier and for the owners of these because he did spend quite heavily in the summer. They brought in the likes of Calvin Stengs, Justin Cliver, Jean-Claire Todibo, signed on a permanent deal. And obviously Mario Lamina and Pablo Rosario have also been brought in. And straight away, I think that midfield two of Lamina and Rosario have shown just how important they're going to be. Also as well, Dante, not a new signing, but he missed 29 league games last season with an injury to his cruciates. And really, he's so important in that Nice defence. You really sense that when it was discovered that he would be out for as long with that injury, Nice would struggle. And unsurprisingly, they struggled. He is now 37, Dante, but I think there are parallels to be drawn between Dante at Nice and Jose Font at Lille. Um, I, I think Dante can be to Jean-Claire Todibo what Jose Font was and to an extent still is to Sven Botman at, at, at Lille. So let's, let's keep an eye on that, that partnership. I think that could be really interesting. Um, and also up front, Kasper Dahlberg. What a brilliant Euros he had with Denmark scoring some lovely goals and impressing with his general forward play. He is full of confidence naturally after that Euros um, and he's forming quite an intriguing front two partnership with Ami Guiri who is arguably Nice's best player last season. In fact, not even arguably, without doubt in my opinion, Nice's best player last season. He was a real shining light in what was an otherwise disappointing season for Les Aiglons. Dolberg himself, I spoke about Guiri having quite a positive season relatively speaking, for Nice last season. But Dahlberg, his issues last season were well documented. Uh, <laughs> he had a good first season as well at Nice after joining from Ajax. Eight goals in 23, but last season he only managed six goals in 25 games. And in addition to those struggles in front of goal, he also had his car stolen, his watch stolen, his house was invaded, he had appendicitis, and he also caught COVID-19. So really, it was a really difficult season for a striker who's still only 23, still very young in a relatively new environment as well. It was only his second season after joining from Ajax. But this season, he looks really good, Michael. And I'm not surprised because he was so good for Denmark at the Euros. And there was a reason why everybody was talking about him at Ajax. He's a powerful striker. He's got a really good touch as well. A good finish, really clever finish on him. And also his movement, his kind of instinctive movement is really conducive to opening up good chances for him. And he, he usually takes those chances. His goal against Marseille in the game, which was ultimately postponed and then restarted and then administratively the win was given to, to Nice anyway. But his goal from Jordan Latomba's cross, a nonchalant chest past Steve Mondonda was exquisite in my opinion you can say it's only close range but that technique was really impressive I think Casper Dahlberg with the support of Amin Guiri in that front too with potentially the support of Calvin Stengs as well who's really creative his numbers at Altmar were really impressive I think the support of those two will be highly beneficial to Casper Dahlberg's all-round game now some words that are being thrown around to describe these buzzwords, if you like, vertically and horizontally compact, well-organised, disciplined. These are all buzzwords associated now with Nice that we quite extensively associated with Lille last season. So 
the fact that he's also gone with this 4-4-2 at least that he was so wedded to it Leo suggests that he's probably just thinking I had a winning formula at Leo let's try and use it here at Nice, I spoke about that interesting centre-half partnership between Jean-Claire Todibo and Dante. Um, there's also Melvin Bard, who's brought in from Wheel. He's only 20 years of age, but he's second for interceptions this season in Ligue 1, and he's in the 99th percentile for pressures applied um, when compared to left-backs across the top five leagues in Europe. So his signing from Lyon, from a Nice perspective, is fantastic. From Lyon's perspective, slightly baffling, but great signing. And we've also got Yusuf Atal, 25, 8th for carries into the final third this season. I know it's a small sample size, but still we can see two attack-minded fullbacks, two very capable fullbacks. And that, I think, mirrors what we saw at Wheel again last season. It's a very compact side, difficult to break down, but there's some real quality. And that sporadic flair in the final third, as we saw with Lille last season. Jordan Latomba as well replaced. Yusuf Atal, quite early on against Marseille and provided that assist for Dahlberg's exquisite, um, mind-boggling finish. I know that I'm probably over-egging it here because it was only from a matter of yards, but just the, the manner of him chesting it past Mondonda when the ball was played in with such pace, I felt was so impressive. Particularly when we think about the stuttering starts of other teams in Liga and Lyon, Monaco and Lille, I think there's an opening here for Nice under Galti to push on Ineos, of course, the owners that you mentioned, Michael, the petrochemical group, have owned Nice since August 2019. But I think that the purchase, if you like, of Christophe Galtier was apparently bought out of his contract at Lille for €3 million Euros, could perhaps prove to be the most important signing of the Ineos area. He has such a good manager. He's so resourceful, Michael, and he's so capable at improving players and improving teams as a whole. He's very good as a man-manager in that sense. He will get the most out of those players. And this is a team that has quality. Good structure and collective approach, absolutely. Peppered with individual quality. Some buzzwords I've seen in a few articles. Um, there's a really good art- article actually in the First Time Finish website about Galtier and Nice. So I would highly advise going and giving that a read. But words like order, system and consistency, those are the hallmarks of Galtier's sides and I think that Nice could be onto a winner here in terms of finishing perhaps even in the top four maybe the top three particularly I mentioned the highly creative Calvin Sainz once he joins this Nice team I think they could step up to another level again and we've also got Alexis Claude Maurice due to come back from injury can play out wide on either side can play through the middle he's got this ability to and this desire almost to take the ball on quick with his feet. And he's got a brilliant long-range shot on him as well. He was highlighted in that first-time finish as one to watch out for when he does return. So, so many options. Some defensive consistency as well there. Not conceded a goal yet, as you highlighted, Michael. I think, as I've said, they're on to a winner. Galtier won silverware at Saint-Étienne in Lille after having taken over at both those clubs when they were in a difficult place. Nice endured a complicated season last season. But the early signs under Galtier, admittedly under a small sample size under Galtier, but the early signs are very promising. Well, we'll wrap up our analysis of French football there and turn our attention to Germany. We'll be right back. In Germany, 
Bayer Leverkusen swept Adi Hooter's Gladbach team aside with a clinical 4-0 victory at the Bayer Arena on Saturday night. Newly appointed Leverkusen coach Gerardo Seoane could hardly have asked for a better performance. The 42-year-old arrived in North Rhine-Westphalia over the summer following a highly successful period in charge of young boys in the Swiss Super League. That young boy's side was known for its directness and intense verticality, two qualities which we saw in abundance as Leverkusen outplayed um, an injury-depleted Gladbach in that 4-0 win. So just how excited should we be about Sewani's Leverkusen side this season, Ali? In short, Michael, very excited. Thomas Broich, who was co-commentator for the World Feed during... Leverkusen's game against Gladbach on the weekend made the really quite astute observation that Leverkusen looked more balanced in that game than they had done last season and less vulnerable in transition. Now that word vulnerable, I think, defined the second half of Leverkusen's season last season, maybe their season as a whole, you could argue, just to refresh our memories Michael going into match day 13 last season just before the brief winter break that the Bundesliga had Leverkusen sat top of the table and they led 1-0 against Bayern Munich on match day 13 and looked set to go four points clear of the Bavarians however as we now know Bayern fought back and scored in the 93rd minute to win 2-1 and that was quite a self-inflicted loss. I think the second goal in particular was highly avoidable. That loss and the nature of that loss really seemed to psychologically hit Leverkusen for six. The early signs this season, however, Michael, under new manager Gerardo Seoane, are fairly positive. Against Gladbach, they were relentless. They were free-flowing and... Overall, very impressive. We do have to, of course, caveat that with the fact that the game was arguably won within the opening 10 minutes. Gladbach, of course, suffered several highly disruptive in-game injuries, as you say, Michael, and their defence, backed up by an uncharacteristically shaky Jan Sommer, was woefully unorganised as a result. They lost half of their back four, the full right side of their back four, and A.D. Hooter just couldn't cope and couldn't mould his team into something which would be able to compete and snuff out wave after wave of Leverkusen attack. That said, credit to Leverkusen for being so direct and so effective in transition. They also defended quite well in a block, seemingly addressing certain issues which were highlighted during their opening day draw at Union Berlin. Now, just focusing on their recruitment, Michael, I think they've recruited really well in the transfer market and I would highlight a few signings in particular. Mitchell Backer, 21-year-old signed from PSG, was involved for that first goal against Gladbach on the weekend. Odilon Kostinu, 20-year-old signed from Club Bruges, looks to be a really good signing, a sort of ball-carrying centre-half. And speaking of ball-carrying centre-halves, Piero Hincapié, 19-year-old, has been signed from the top fight in Argentina. And he was one of the breakout stars, if not the breakout star of the Copa America this summer for Ecuador. So I think those three signings in particular are really interesting and also 
will help to shore up what was a quite vulnerable, to use that word again, defence last season at the Bay Arena. Now, I've spoken about the recruitment in terms of players. The recruitment of Gerardo Seoan as manager or coach looks to be a really intelligent one, Michael. We, of course, highlighted Gerardo Seoan as a potential replacement at Hertha Berlin in the dugout there during our episode with Pure Football when we considered the question, how do you solve a problem like Hertha Berlin? And we looked at his style there and I'm just going to focus on that style again. Of course, at Young Boys, he implemented a possession-based attacking style of football. If you want to hear more beyond what I'm going to say right now, I would highly suggest you go and check out the article on the Bundesliga Daily website about what Gerardo Seoan would bring to Leverkusen. Really good in-depth article. But just to sort of summarise that style, yeah, possession-based attacking style of football. His young boys side, of course, knocked Leverkusen out of the Europa League last season in the round of 32. So whether or not he was on their radar before then or not remains to be seen. But if he was, the nature of that victory and the nature of his tactics probably cemented Leverkusen's interest in him. He was so successful domestically with young boys and to an extent in Europe um, after taking over from Eddie Hooter in July 2018. The game at the weekend was, of course, the former young boys manager's derby with Hooter up against Seoan. At young boys, he largely deployed a 4-4-2 slash 2-4-4 formation. Um, he used inverted wingers and really looked to push his fullbacks high and wide. They were really direct in the attacking phase, while still maintaining a balance of sorts and being narrow and compact in defence. They will always look to press high and win the ball back quickly. And, and what they will do is that if they do win the ball high up the pitch, win possession back high up the pitch, they'll look to exploit the immediate disorganisation in the opposition's defence when they're not organised, when they're unable to get their shape back because they've just lost the ball unexpectedly and they play quick forward passes through or behind the lines it's quite an explosive style and it works really well so we combine that with this desire to play a direct style when they have the ball at the back some direct runs some direct passes there's a lot of verticality there to use that buzzword and what it makes for what that style makes for is something really exciting to watch it's this high, aggressive and successful press. Now, Leverkusen's press last season was often disjointed and it looked really quite ineffective at times. The early signs, and they are very early signs, but the early signs are that we are seeing progress towards a more cohesive press, towards a more effective press. So those signs are really positive. In terms of formation, he's opted for a 4-2-3-1 so far. And I think that probably works well with the players that Leverkusen have available to them. I just don't quite think their wingers would be best suited to a 4-4-2. So the 4-2-3-1 in particular allows and is allowing the partnership between Musa Diaby, the 22-year-old Musa Diaby out on the right wing, and the 20-year-old Jeremy Fringpong at right back, nominally at right back to Blossom. I think the two of them are looking good, in particular against Gladbach, looks really good. Joe Scali, poor Joe Scali, did have a torrid time 
on the weekend against Leverkusen. But I think a lot of defenders will have a tour of time. And I think this system that Sailwan's looking to implement with that 4-2-3-1 formation looks to be a winner. I'm not saying that Leverkusen will challenge Bayern Munich or challenge Leipzig or Dortmund. I don't think they will, but they at least have a chance to finish back in the European spots this season to get back into Europe. Potentially they could if if one of, I suppose, the other teams who would be qual- or looking to qualify for the Champions League, if they, if they were to slip up, for example, Wolfsburg were to slip up, they could maybe squeeze into the Champions League. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. It's a small sample size, and Sailwan does have a lack of experience in the top five leagues. But to reiterate, the early signs are good, and Leverkusen will, at the very least, be a fun team to watch under Gerardo Sailwan. One of the teams that you mentioned there were Jesse Marsh's RB Leipzig, who bounced back from their opening day defeat to Mainz with a comprehensive 4-0 win at home to Stuttgart on Friday night. De Rottenbullen lined up with a mouth-watering front four of Andre Silva, Emil Forsberg, Christopher Nkunku, and Dominic Shaboshalai in a nominal 4-2-3-1 formation. And all four forwards were involved extensively. In particular, how good was it to see Dominic Shaboshalai finally start a Bundesliga game for the side he joined nearly eight months ago in January? It was great, Michael. It really was so encouraging to see Dominic Shaboshalai finally starting a Bundesliga game for Leipzig, finally starting a competitive game for Leipzig. But I feel like I have to give credit to all four members of that front line. Um, Firstly, I'll start with Christopher Nkunku, who had 10 progressive carries, which was top for this game, three carries into the final third and two carries into the opposition penalty area, which was top again. And he was responsible for four goal-creating actions which was top he was also top for touches in the opposition's penalty area with nine touches um so some really impressive numbers from Nkunku there even if he didn't have any direct assists he won the penalty which Andre Silva converted and just speaking of Andre Silva 25 year old Andre Silva who's transferred from Eintracht Frankfurt is a really positive signing for Leipzig took his penalty well lovely movement and a lovely flick into Forsberg to set up that goal, beautiful team goal as well. Some great movement, some great awareness and a great pass there. The only thing I would say, only 21 touches. No player in Leipzig starting 11 managed fewer. And he is in the 55th percentile generally for touches per 90 compared to his fellow forwards across Europe. But still, last season, I think he was averaging about 37 touches per 90 at Eintracht. And this season, he's managed about 26 or 27 touches per 90. So slightly down, but we saw that he didn't need a lot of contact with the ball last season to score a lot of goals. And I think regardless of how many touches he has, his very presence just confuses defences, occupies defences and opens up spaces for the likes of Emil Forsberg, Christopher Nkunku and Dominic Saboslai in that really exciting front four. Speaking of Emil Forsberg, what a player. I was privileged enough to be able to watch him in person over the summer at Hamden Park when Sweden played against Ukraine. And he looked to tire after about 70 minutes. And it was amazing just how Sweden fell out the game after Forsberg fell out the game. He's so influential. He's such a beautiful, graceful football player. And he was brilliant against Stuttgart on the weekend. Nine progressive passes received. uh, So he was top for that. 13 successful pressures applied, top for that. Nine pressures applied in the final third, which I think tells us a lot about his game and what his role will continue to be 
under Jesse Marsh and scored that lovely goal to make it 2-0. Brilliant player, the oldest member of that front four at 29 years of age. And I think his experience and his all-round ability is going to be so important for Leipzig this season. And then the man that we're here really to talk about, well, we're here to talk about all four members of that front four, but Dominic Sabosso in particular, 20 years of age, finally starting a Bundesliga game for RB Leipzig. Two goals, the first one he means, the second, I'm not sure if he does, but the technique anyway with that free kick, putting it into a good area with some sort of rasping qualities, really impressive and highly satisfying. So yeah, that's what he does, Dominic Sabosso. One of the things that he does, his set pieces are marvellous, but he's more than just a set piece specialist. Um, generally, in terms of his numbers, nine shot creating actions, so joint top with Christopher Nkunku, six passes and three crosses into the penalty area, top for those numbers, and seven successful pressures applied, so he was third for his team. Forsberg obviously topping that particular chart, but I give you those numbers, Michael, just to show that the front four were as involved statistically as they looked ostensibly. Even Andre Silva, who didn't have too many touches, was still involved in his all-round play. I think this front four could be one of the most exciting front fours or one of the most exciting attacks because not everyone goes with the front four in Europe. We highlighted it in our group chat. We spoke about how it's quite mouth-watering, actually, this front four. I think we will be paying a lot of attention to them as the season develops. So Bossoy, of course, just to reiterate, Friday night represented his first start in the Bundesliga for the club he joined nearly eight months ago. Coincidentally, 224 days had passed between his signing and his full Bundesliga debut. Um, and I get that statistic from the Bundesliga website, which awarded Dominic Sabosloy with the Man of the Match Day award for match day two. He linked up excellently with the rest of that front four and worked really hard off the ball. He's obviously worked under Jesse Marsh before. Jesse Marsh replaced Marco Rose at Salzburg in July 2019 and he really cemented his place in the Salzburg team under Jesse Marsh so I think partnering up with him again will really help him to continue to flourish and to continue to develop positively. Bundesliga website spoke about his eye for the spectacular, his elite level football IQ, his selfless streak and his marathon set of lungs. I think he's almost just about got it all in terms of what you would expect from a player in that position. He could really be the game changer, Michael, for Leipzig this season if they are to genuinely challenge Bayern Munich. And just on a closing note, I don't want to focus too much on his injuries over the last eight months, but it was really cruel that he missed so much game time and he missed out on the Euros as well for Hungary. I think that was especially cruel given that he had scored the goal, the last minute goal against Iceland, which sealed Hungary's place at the tournament. Hopefully he can stay fit. Hopefully he'll be fit for Leipzig's game against Dortmund at the start of November so that we can have a reunion of sorts with his good friend Erling Haaland, who he of course played some games with before Haaland made the move to the Bundesliga himself, and Marco Rosa, who supposedly attributes so much credit to for his development, for keeping him grounded and for ensuring that he was able to realise that early potential. While he wasn't a regular in the team under Rose until March 2019 when they played that game against Napoli, I think Rose deserves a lot of credit for his development, certainly at 
almost the top level, certainly in, in the Austrian leagues. Marsh then took on that responsibility when he replaced Marco Rose and he's done excellently. So I think Sabato's in a good place. His father's also been an excellent figure for him in terms of helping him to develop and driving him to succeed. So I think he's got some really good role models, Sabosoy, and he's got an excellent skill set. We will wrap up our analysis of the Bundesliga there and we'll dial in Rudy Barlow from the rural highlands of Scotland. We'll be right back. Rudy Barlow joins us from the rural northwest coast of Scotland, from the beautiful highlands of Scotland. And so he's had to source a recording location for himself uh, with Wi-Fi. So we will have some background atmosphere, to put it one way, um, when we hear from Rudy. But I suppose I think what we're going to go for or what we're going to try and go for is a sort of Sid Lowe-esque style when we discuss the Spanish football and what's been going on in the Liga over the past couple of weeks. Now, a lot of focus has been placed on the title contenders in recent weeks, but perhaps the low-lying storyline so far has been the slow start of the European contenders outside of the top four. In Spain, therefore, I think we should maybe start with Real Betis. Two draws against Mallorca and Cadiz. Is this the beginning of a tough year for Manuel Pellegrini, Barlow? Yeah, potentially. And yes, this is the latest stage in my poor impersonation of Sid Lowe and my attempts to to spoil uh, him. So here's some nice background atmosphere from, from the pub in Poole U on the northwest coast of Scotland. Traversing ourselves back to the, the south of Spain, Manuel Pellegrini, I was on... Uh, I was on a show called Sportsbook Reviews the other day and Junior Brown, the, the other sort of correspondent, so to speak, who was on it, was telling me about how he thought Betis were going to pick up points against Cardiff this weekend because they're in the Europa League and their squad isn't so deep. So it's important for them to really to really grab those points ahead of time before they get into the sort of rotation of Thursday, Sunday, Thursday, Sunday, perhaps even a Monday night game in there. And so it's pretty concerning that they've dropped points twice against Rayo Vallecano and Cad- uh, against Mallorca, sorry, and Cadiz. And they really don't have a deep squad. There's just a few signs for me that Betis, for all that they developed and all that they managed to phase out their, their weaknesses in the areas of their game that made them so unreliable beforehand, they they haven't started off the season with any of that, and Borja Iglesias is another example of that. He's a he was the sort of star signing, and he finally managed to find some kindling, as I put it, um, towards the end of last season, and nearly sort of caught light for them. But he was anonymous against Cadiz again. There were cavernous spaces in the midfield for Gareth to run through. Alvaro Negredo looks like sort of peak for a quick with a Kelme pulling off the defenders and sort of playing the ball into space. And uh, yeah, there's just a few signs that Betis look like the side at the start of last season rather than the side at the end of last season. And if you factor in the lack of depth and the Europa League, that's going to really hurt them. And I do see sort of worrying signs of maybe not regression, but perhaps a trend that will be really hard to reverse this season and much harder than it will last season, where... Also, it should be taken into account, they don't have the time to work on these issues like they did last season. 
Indeed, Barlow, moving now on to Real Sociedad, it's been a less than auspicious opening for the 2020 Copa del Rey winners. On paper, defeat against Barcelona and a home win against Rayo Vallecano are the expected results. But at Road to Nowhere, of course, we like to think we're a little bit better than a purely <laughs> resultadista approach. Um, so neither of these performances really inspired confidence, Barlow. Should we be worried long-term for La Real or are we simply seeing teething problems this season, Barlow? Long-term, I think it's hard to, to say that we're concerned about it because La Real... They did really, really well last season. And I think they have the basis of a really good side. They have a lot of young players, a couple of them that went to the Olympics. And so long term, I can't say that we're concerned, but it does hint at those problems that we saw perhaps last season and the issues that prevented them from really putting in a challenge against Villarreal or or, or even finishing fourth and really sort of taking the, taking the challenge to Sevilla. And those those games that perhaps they they just lack a little bit of mala leche for me, which is sour milk in Spanish, and it is it's the missing of a Gennaro Gattuso or the missing of someone who's going to put his foot in and put in those nippy nippy fouls. Diego Simeone was a perfect example of that um, when he gets David Beckham sent off in the '98 World Cup, just irritating the proverbial something out of the opposition managing to stick your foot in there and and really sort of yeah wind up the opposition and prevent them from getting into their flow this Rio game okay yes they could have scored more they had the chances but they really didn't sort of demonstrate the the clinicalness that or the clinical finishing that Alexander Isak is meant to provide granted he's coming back from injury and against Barcelona again those goals, yeah, they were very impressive. They were very good goals, but they sort of came out of nothing. And so overall, I think they'll be fine in terms of they'll probably make a challenge for the Europa League places again. But can they progress another step forward as a side? I don't know. I think you're relying a lot on Isak and Oya Thabo taking the next step. Hopefully you have a little more David Silva, who was pretty much absent for the majority of last season, and his experience can add a lot to them but yeah I just think they need a little bit of sourness a little bit of bitterness to to really drag them into the next stage of their development and I wonder if that extra money from the CVC deal would maybe be best spent on a midfielder or a centre half to really pull this side together It's been two very tight victories for joint league leaders and reigning champions Atletico Madrid Barlow, why is this any different to the end of last season when Atleti were, of course, squeaking past sides at the other end of the table towards the end of last season? Yeah, that's a, a really, really good question. And and I meant to say well handled the resultadista uh, pronunciation. That was that was bang on, Ali. But I think it's <laughs> part of the, the the joy, if you will, of watching Atleti or the the interest of watching them is the fact that those games towards the end of the season, there was a real sense of exhaustion and fatigue, which was present around all the leagues in in Europe, frankly, to be honest. There was really, you could sense the sort of, the tiredness, especially in Atleti's players, where they'd been leading for so long and the season just felt like it never ended. 
And those games towards the end of the season, they lacked a spark. It was about getting over the line. Whereas I think these first two games, they've not been what's the word, fluid. They've not been completely smooth sailing for Atleti, but there's definitely an aspect of really good play and really encouraging sort of beginnings towards the start of the season. For instance, Angel Correa, he's really hit the ground running, three goals in two games and two, two winners. And you can't really fault his beginning. For me, what was really interesting is that Diego Simeone, started a game with two midfielders at sort of fullback in Llorente and Saul. And if Pep did that, to sort of draw a comparison, we'd be all over that and how he's changing the game and making it sort of 11 players on the pitch and they can all play football and they're all midfielders, essentially. But Simeone, I, I think we talk a lot about shoehorning Saul into the side and yes, okay, there's an aspect that he's not playing in his best position and that takes away a little from his game, but it really did improve their playing out from the back against Celta Vigo, against Elche. They could have had a couple more game uh, goals and the the crux of that or the sort of source of those chances was Rodrigo de Paolo and I think he has to be the most exciting aspect of this Atleti team coming into the season. Because there's two or three balls that he just, almost like golf shots, places just rolling in behind the defence for someone to run onto. And Carrasco had a chance. Correa had another. He converted one. But Rodrigo de Paul gives this team a totally different aspect to, to what, what we've seen in the past, where their midfield is hardworking and productive, but it's not necessarily quite as technical as others, I think. I mean, Koke is remarkably good technically. He's, he is very good, but he's not defence splitting, so to speak, in the same way that perhaps, I'm not going to compare him to Iniesta, but Matt Clark, I think it was, or Sam Leverage, I think it was on the La Liga Lowdown podcast, compared him to Pete Xavi Alonso. And it was that kind of ball that just finds its way in between the fullback and the centre-half which DePaul adds to adds to a team with a lot of runners. And so if you if you have someone who can provide, then that, that really makes Atleti a little bit of a different prospect. And if we can detach ourselves from the idea that you need to be perfect in La Liga at the minute, because this isn't peak Real Madrid and Barcelona that we're dealing with. There are dropped points. There are areas that can be improved upon. Then this Atleti definitely has a chance, and I think that's why you kind of have to make them favourites because they're, they're they've improved. They're not playing catch up to the other two, and they have a solid system in place. So that's why it's different to last season. Is because just on the pitch they look a lot better. They look different. They look like they have new solutions, and yeah, I think that's where we can really take encouragement for Simeone and all the Colchonero fans. Indeed, Barlow, well, thank you very much for giving up some time while on your holidays. I'll let you go off and enjoy the pub and the lovely <laughs> sights of the northwest coast of Scotland, and I'll catch up with you when you're back from your holiday. Thanks for joining us, Barlow. An absolute pleasure, and looking forward to listening to you and Michael in a bit. Cheers. Good to hear from our good friend, Rudy Barlow. Now, turning our attention to Serie A. This weekend we had the return of Serie A and the special one. Jose Mourinho's arrival in July was met with huge fanfare when the iconic boss was paraded around the Italian capital. Since then, 
He's been all business, assembling an exciting squad for the upcoming campaign, epitomised by the signing of Tammy Abraham for £35 million. By defeating Fiorentina on Sunday night, he became the fastest manager in almost 30 years to reach 50 wins in Italy's top tier. How many more landmarks do you think he could achieve with this Roma side, Michael? Yeah, it's intriguing because we've got this, we've got Jose Mourinho who's coming off the back of two disappointing spells in England at Tottenham and Manchester United. Yeah, he's still probably the highest profile manager in the world. And I think for a team like AS Roma, it's a massive, it's a massive draw for them. And to see whether that's replicated on the pitch, I think that's what we need to start looking into and we'll start getting an idea of from now on. I mean, it's, He's got off to a good start. He's been saying all the right things, kind of like he did at Tottenham. He seems quite reinvigorated, quite fresh, and was quick to try and appease the Italian media, complimenting their focus on tactics rather than controversies off the field. And what's followed has been a big overhaul from ex-boss Francesca Francesca's Roma squad. Um, for a start, Mourinho will be looking to implement a very different style to Fonseca's 3-4-2-1. One will be looking at a 4 2 3 one for the coming season and they'll probably be more less expansive even than what we were used to with Fonseca like wherever Mourinho goes money seems to follow and Roma have been the biggest spenders in Serie A this season spending just shy of 90 million in the transfer window so far and despite offloading a number of players have only generated 2 million in sales so they've undergone the biggest net spend also and like you said the most eye-catching arrival of the more is Tammy Abraham and He's going to be key to whatever Mourinho goes on to achieve at Roma. He really could be a star of this division, I think. Last season, he had a 19% chance conversion rate, which just offers you a glimpse of what he could bring to this side. In comparison to his predecessor, Edin Dzeko, who's gone to Inter Milan, he is going to offer greater mobility, a greater physical pre presence. But what we saw in, his, in the victory against Fiorentina was all the intelligent striker play that Abraham has as well. And the movement was absolutely sensational. He first won them a red. He didn't get on the score sheet, but he got a red card for Fiorentina's goalkeeper, Trogowski. And then he followed it up with two assists. And interestingly enough, like just to give you an idea how good his assists were, they were both that good that they were both flagged up by the linesman for offside. But on second look by VAR, they were both proven to be onside just indicating how good that movement is and I think looking at the goals for Roma's season you know Tammy Abraham will have his targets as well in San Mourinho but he's going to be key if they're going to challenge for the top four and maybe the title in this real open season of Mourinho is going to reel back the years and do what he's done at the likes of Inter, Chelsea and Porto in the past but they will be desperate to excel in the cups aside from the league they've not won a trophy since 2008 They've got a good chance in the Europa Conference League. They've got a second leg to play tomorrow, I believe, against Trabzonspor at the time of recording. And they've not won. Yeah, so they've not won one in almost 15 years now. But there are some good signs. They've, in addition to Abraham, they've made some really um, interesting signings in positions where I think they really needed upgrading. Rui Patricio's coming from my beloved Wolves. I think Patricio came off the back of quite a disappointing season at Wolves, but he did look a bit better for Portugal in the Euros, I thought, and he's still an improvement on what they had in previously in Paulo Lopez. 
as one of the goalkeeping options. Another really interesting signing up front is somebody who'll be competing and maybe playing alongside Abraham. That is Eldor Shamaradurov, or Shamaradov, sorry, who has been on fire for Roman preseason. The Uzbek striker excelled in Italy in his first season at Genoa. Before that, he was at Rostov in Russia, where he scored almost 20 goals, I think, in the season before he joined, arrived in Italy. And he's a really robust, he's a big striker, like Abraham, but very mobile, like Abraham, also very robust and very aggressive. And he also got off to a good start getting an assist in the win against Fiorentina for the third goal also. And what's good about that is he'll keep Abraham on his toes. And then if you throw in a the good core of Italians they have in their team, such as Gianluca Mancini, Brian Cristante played in the Euro 2020 final, Lorenzo Pellegrini and the returning Nicola Zaniolo, who's got so much ability. There is loads to be excited about. And I guess Mourinho's biggest task for if he is going to get some silverware and achieve more landmarks with this Roma side is, can he keep the momentum for longer and learn from his mistakes? Because unfortunately for him in his past two managerial stints, he's shown that he's regressing rather than progressing. Another cultural comeback was that of Massimiliano Allegri, who was reunited with Juventus following a two-year sabbatical of sorts. Despite this, the enthusiasm surrounding Allegri's return was dampened somewhat when Udinese fought from two goals down to rescue a point. It may have dawned on Allegri that he is inheriting a much weaker side than that which he inherited from Antonio Conte in 2014 in his first spell in charge and the one that he passed on to Maurizio Sarri in 2019. Considering the performance against Udinese on the opening weekend, what first steps should Allegri take to turn the old lady around? Yeah, I think one of the first things Allegri will look to turn around or look to increase is their confidence, which seemed to take a bit of a hit in that game. They got off to a flyer, goals from Paolo Dybala, Juan Quadrado, Dybala got off to a really good start. He played a part in Quadrado's second goal as well. But quite quickly, it was the confidence needs addressing, but whether it was overconfidence or a lack of was a bit confusing because at 2-0, they looked overconfident and they allowed Udinese to grow into the game and they let them get into dangerous positions and eventually they got themselves back at 2-2. And it was only then that Juventus, they looked a bit disheveled at 2-1 and they did bring themselves back together. But it was a bit too late and Cristiano's Ronaldo's goal, which could have won it, was ruled out for offside in the last few minutes. But we need to look at these two goals that they conceded to really look at one of the big issues that Allegri's got to address, I guess, and that is the goalkeeper, Wojciech Szczesny, who was a major fault for both goals. And Allegri's task at this stage in the transfer window with less than a week left will be to try and restore his confidence if they can't get a replacement because Chesney's such an interesting goalkeeper. He's had such an interesting career. You know, throughout his time in England at Arsenal a few years ago, uh, he was haunted by mistakes which seemed to plague his time there. And he seemed to really find himself in Italy, firstly at Roma and then at Juventus under Allegri, where he established himself as the first-choice goalkeeper and kind of made Arsenal begin to look a bit silly which you know not the first team or player to do that but in the last season he's gone through a much more difficult time uh your diff- euro 2020 was difficult for him also didn't cover himself in glory in the shock defeat to slovakia which wouldn't have done his confidence any good because previously at the world cup in 2018 he'd also 
had a poor game against Senegal. So his national reputation hadn't been great also. But the first goal here, he's palms the tame shot into Tolgay Arslan's path and brought him down. Second one was dispossessed in an awful area to the extent where the press was triggered was so evident because Delaferre was waiting in the middle of the goal, sort of anticipating a Chesney error. And the biggest issue they got there now is Gigi Buffon's gone to Parma. Their backup goalkeeper is a guy called Carlo Pinsoglio. He's a former Italy under-21 goalkeeper, but he's 31 now, played four games in as many years and certainly won't be up to the levels needed to play in the goal for Juventus. I think just quickly looking at some other issues that he's going to want to address, I think midfield is still a bit of an issue, although Manuel Locatelli, I'm sure, will be a massive signing. There's not been too many signings and that's been looked at, but I guess the one thing for Allegri is he rarely looks to overhaul a squad in his first season. He didn't at AEC Milano Juventus, but the biggest challenge is he's inheriting a weaker squad and midfield looks to be a real issue, but I do hope that Locatelli should address that a bit, but there's a real lack of work rate off the ball when you look at Rabiot and Arthur and Aaron Ramsey. That last weekend they competed in the first match week weekend, they completed the least pressures out of any team on the opening day with 56. And I think they've still not really replaced those mobile likes of Matuidi and Kadira from years ago. They're the type of players who in their prime they could really do with now. And I guess maybe one other issue he'll look to address is creativity. They had a 0.8 uh, ex, ex, expected goals, not from penalties, which again was right at the bottom, joint second lowest on the opening day. And I think maybe key to that will be Paolo Dybala. But yeah, there are some good signs. And I think Allegri, he, he certainly got his hands full. Maurizio Sarri arrived at Lazio with a point to prove and a project to build after being denied the opportunity to do so in his sole seasons at Chelsea and Juventus. Under the tight purse strings of frugal owner Claudio Lotito, Sarri has, however, had to be savvy in Rome. Nevertheless, E. Bianco Celeste started brightly with a 3-1 win over newcomers Empoli. Does the appointment of Sarri itself make Lazio top four contenders for the upcoming campaign? Yeah, I think it certainly puts them in that bracket. I think Sarri's had such a successful career, even though he's gone out in an unpopular manner. Juventus and Chelsea still won numerous titles, but he's got big shoes to fill. He's following in from Simone Inzaghi, who worked wonders at Lazio, Coppa in Italia in 2019, Champions League football. They achieved the following season as well. And he's got some big challenges in front of him as well. Simone Inzaghi was very much a system-based manager. They kind of tried to master that 3-5-2 under him. And Sarri is quite similar, but with a narrow 4-3-3 with this vertical tiki-taka, which he became famous for during his time at Napoli. And I'm sure he'll look to replicate during his time at Lazio. And I think one of the challenges he's going to have is this 3-5-2 is far from, is very different to Sarri's preferred system. And because of that, he's going to need slightly different players than what Lazio have, especially in some of the wider areas. And They've looked to do this with some shrewd business because compared to the city rivals, Roma, they're operating on a much tighter budget this summer. Elside Hasai has arrived from Napoli as a free. Pedro arriving first cross-city signing in Rome for 40 years has arrived on a free as well. And Felipe Anderson has arrived for just under 3 million from West Ham. And all started, and they all looked like they could be good signings because they all started in a comfortable win. Both, all of them had good games. Felipe Anderson got the assist for the first goal. Hesai won the penalty for the third goal. And 
Pedro was a good presence throughout as well. But what was quite interesting is that we are we're already going to see seen plenty of signs of the Sari play for their second. They did actually go a goal down, but their equalizer, which was the Anderson corner, was a short corner routine, which Sari's intricate set piece routines is something that he really prides himself on. And it was really well worked to get them back into it. And then we saw an inverted run from the converted right wing back, Lazari, who's playing at right back, really talented player who ran through to get Lazio the second. So already it's what the good signs are for Sarri is it looks like Lazio could make a fast start and there might not be too period, big a period of adaptation needed, which was an initial concern, I guess. In terms of the top four, I think there's a couple of challenges that they're going to face. I think question marks will naturally fall over Chiro Immobile, despite how many goals he's scored in recent years. What we have seen a big fault to Immobile's game and maybe what's stopped him leaving Lazio or stopped other clubs going in for him is his failure in the past to adapt in different systems at Borussia Dortmund, Sevilla, and even Italy, I guess, to an extent, Euro 2020, where he wasn't one of their stars at the very least. But I guess in the midfield, they'll probably, they've got, they'll look to replace maybe Lucas as well, who's aging a bit. They played Jean-Daniel Akpro in the last game, but one of the good signs there is that they seem to be on the verge of adding Toma Basic, who I'm sure, Ali, you will know pretty well from following mm-hmm. Bordeaux last season. Mm-hmm. And I, what, what I would say is that I think Lazio are going to be a lot of fun to watch this season. And I do think the benefit of what they've got going for them at the moment is this, the top four, the top six, the title race is all so open at the moment. It's all there for the taking. And yeah, let's see what Lazio can do. But I think it'll be a lot of fun. Absolutely, Michael. It's certainly a theme of our early season analysis. Certain teams are going to be a lot of fun to watch, but that's what we want, Michael. We want teams that play exciting football, maybe not always the most effective football overall, but we want teams that play exciting football. We want teams that are fun to watch. I think we will draw to a close this episode there. And we will say thank you to you, Michael Jones. We will say thank you to Rory Barlow, who dialed in from that pub in the northwest of Scotland. And I'll say thank you, most importantly, to you, the listener. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. We'll be back in a fortnight's time with more European football analysis. Until then, stay safe and stay well. Goodbye. (laughs) 